Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hello, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Gary Yo, the Huffington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, which also happens to be my alma mater. Professor Yo specializes in microeconomic theory, natural resources, and environmental economics. He's also a researcher on the economics of climate change and integrated assessment modeling. He was a senior member of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, as it is called, that was awarded a share of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore. He's also been involved with the IPCC since the mid-90s and has served, among other capacities, as lead author for four different chapters in the IPCC Third Assessment Report and the convening lead author for the last chapter of the contribution of Working Group 2 to the IPCC Fourth Assessment Report. All that being said... Gary's an accomplished guy and brings a unique and different perspective to the podcast. We covered a wide range of topics, including Gary's history, both in teaching and also in climate change. We talked about Gary's views on the most impactful things to bring about change and some things that maybe will be less impactful or that don't have the political will to go through like a carbon tax. We talked about our current president and the geopolitical landscape. And we also talked about how concerned to be or how optimistic to be given all the things that we're seeing now and the things that have been trending over the last several decades. Okay, Gary O, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. It's funny. So you have been a professor at Wesleyan University for how long? I started here in 1977. So 1977, so... 42 or 43 years, something. So I went to Wesleyan University as an undergraduate, mm -hmm. and I graduated in 98, which means you were here when I was here. I don't remember you. Uh, well, <laughs> in fact, I would be very surprised if any professor remembers me. I'm a little sad about it, but I, I'm a very passionate person, but it took until after college and into my professional experience before I really uncovered how to tap in to that. So it makes me sad that there are people like you that are doing such high impact things for the world that were also doing those things when I was here that it was just two ships passing in the night. It happens to all of us. I can remember when I was a graduate student at Yale in economics, sitting in the back of the room for seminars. And my job was to try to figure out a really good question to ask. And the guy would talk and I would think and think and think and think about four minutes later, I'd have a really good question to ask. And that topic had long since passed and there was no point in asking that question. It happens to everybody. That's part of the learning experience. It is. And I think another thing that was surprising to me as I learned more about your background is that, at least in my experience at Wesleyan, and, and I don't know if this is representative of all liberal arts, it was pretty contained in terms of we looked at history or science or different topics, but in a way that wasn't very well integrated with the world. Whereas I feel like with your work, you've not only been looking at the intersection of economics and climate change, but also actively consulting with the government and with industry and with the IPCC reports and the scientists. So is that a common thing in liberal arts or is your work an exception? I think my work is an exception. And I think Wesleyan was the best place for me. Wesleyan is a liberal arts university with extraordinary faculty across three divisions. We encourage students to come in and follow their nose. They may come in thinking, I want to major in history, I want to major in biology, or I want to major in something else. Advisors will say, well, that's fine. Go take some of that, but go take some of this. Try a dance class. Try a humanities class. And that's what we do. That's what liberal arts is all about. Wesleyan treated me the same way they treat their students. I came in as a theoretical economist for two or three or four years. I was doing decision-making under an uncertainty in the environment of economic models. And in 1981 or so, Bill Nordhaus phoned me up and said, I learned environmental economics from him and Charlie Koopmans. Would you like to be part of a National Academy of Sciences study on climate change? Back then, there might be 
four economists in the planet had any idea what climate change was all about. But it seemed like a good idea at the time, so I said yes, and that's how it started. And this university allowed me to stop being what they hired me to be and allowed me to go and do climate change. And instead of publishing in really, really good economics journals, I started to publish in Science and Nature. What year was that? 82, 83. Got it. So you've been actively studying climate change since 82, 83. That's right. And I guess given that that's a lot of years, <laughs> what's different about your view of climate change now or about the problem than when you started? I know a lot more about it. And the science has progressed, the economics has progressed, but the major message has not. Back then, the major message was, if you want to worry about it, and why would you want to worry about it? We hadn't yet quantified the damages. What you have to do is slow emissions, slow fossil fuel consumption, that sort of thing. You were not allowed to talk about adaptation, how to respond to the damages. Not allowed by who? The environmental community. They thought if you talked about adaptation, you were giving up on the problem. What ability do they have to make rules? They didn't make any rules for me. I ended up worrying about adaptation and mitigation. The message that stills around, and if we had been able to articulate it in 1983 or four, might have been useful. The planet has three choices, mitigate, adapt, or suffer. And you have to do something, but we are already suffering. It is irreversible. This is not your grandfather's pollution. It can't fix it. We have committed the planet to what we've committed the planet to, and you can't go back and take it. All you can do is ameliorate what the future will look like. Got it. So you feel like we are already past the point of no return? Is that what I'm hearing? No. We've passed the point where it is impossible to say that I'm not observing climate change and I don't see any impacts on human activity or ecosystems or anything that somebody might really worry about point of no return is when you commit the planet to, at say, three degrees warming, melting of the Greenland ice sheet, so that instead of three or four feet of sea level rise, we're talking about 20 or 25 feet of sea level rise. So you're talking about New York is in trouble, Boston's in trouble, Miami's in trouble, all of Florida's in trouble. That's the point of no return. How far off are we from that? Is there a clear idea of what threshold would be crossed to bring something like that about? We are, and those were degrees Celsius, we are at about one degree warming since pre-industrial levels. And in equilibrium, we have probably committed the planet to two degrees warming. The jury is still out from the scientific community about whether or not if you reduce concentrations that the temperatures will actually start to come back down. We're not sure that's gonna happen. If it doesn't happen, we have a lot of work to do in the next 50 years. A lot of work in terms of adaptation? A lot of work in terms of mitigation as well, in terms of slowing the pace of the emissions of greenhouse gases, the heat-trapping gases that cause the planet to warm. Because if this is a debate for Bill McGibbon, he created 350. It was the target for atmospheric concentrations that would stabilize temperature at some particular level. We've blown past 350 a long, long time ago. We're at about 430. And you're talking about parts per million, PPM? Parts per million carbon. Don't lose your thought. Is that the best metric for a regular person who's concerned about climate to track in terms of knowing where we are against this problem? I don't know. It's one of two or three, I think, manageable metrics. Atmospheric concentrations are certainly things that are reported. They make sense. They depend on cumulative emissions, not annual emissions, but emissions over a long period of time. So that's another thing that would be reported. And there's an uncertain correlation between cumulative emissions and increases in temperature. When I talk, I talk about cumulative emissions. The reason for that is that it allows you to think about, it's not necessary to be really, really strict year in and year out, year in and year out. What is required is that over the course of 10 or 15 years, you are very strict. So if you go a little high early, you've committed yourself to going a little low late. Or if you get really aggressive early, then you bought yourself some time and you could emit a little bit more late. So cumulative emissions as expressed by what? So it's not PPM, but how do you talk about it? It's gigatons of carbon emitted across the planet. And people are now sort of keeping track of that. Every country that's a part of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change keeps track of how much 
it emits. And you add that up and you go from year to year to year and you find out from that whether you're above a trajectory that will hold temperatures to something that you would like, like one and a half or two degrees, or if you're above that, you find that out. Got it. And so so with Bill McKibben and the 350 and now we're at 430, is there a similar aggregate number for the cumulative emissions that is commonly tracked? It's something like 1,700 gigatons of carbon. And we emit about 30 gigatons of carbon a year. Given that carbon is, I mean, it's invisible. And you talked about how there's symptoms today, but I think one problem that we're having in terms of addressing the problem urgently is that I think the symptoms that people in the Western world would tell you is, gosh, it feels windier when I'm walking around in the city than it used to. Or we didn't even have a spring this year. It just went from winter to summer. And so there are a number of those sorts of things that people observe. They look out the kitchen window and they see the impacts of climate change and warming are not always bad. But if they watched the news last night, they found out that there were 55 tornadoes in the middle of the country in the United States of America in one day in May. That has never happened before. A couple of years ago, there were 42 inches of rain in Houston under Hurricane Harvey that was created not because climate change caused the hurricane, because climate change took away the steering currents that told Harvey where to go. He got over Houston and said, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to sit here and dump rain. And they got 42 inches. And it was the third 500-year flood in the previous five years in one place. And so for somebody like me, what you're looking at is the statistics. What is the likelihood that the distribution of weather associated with old climate would generate those sorts of events? And the answer is it's very, very small. The climate has changed. The distribution of events has changed. A question I get frequently, is this the new normal? No, I have no idea what the new normal is. It's just a snapshot on the way to the new normal. We get to choose how bad the new normal is going to be. One thing I worry about is that, so take take these extreme events, let's call it a tornado. This is a wildfire or a flood. There's yeah. flooding in the Midwest. Or the wildfires in Los Angeles. So when these events happen, for those that are personally affected or the friends and loved ones of those that are personally affected, they get mobilized the same way that if you're friends with a family whose child gets pediatric cancer, right? Then all of a sudden you get mobilized. You didn't know pediatric cancer was such a big issue, but you're going to turn in to their biggest fundraiser and champion. But it kind of takes one of those events to awaken most people. And so so maybe if there's an extreme event like what you're describing in my town or my city or my state, then I get mobilized. But that's only one town or one city in one state in a whole wide world. And so What's it going to take to mobilize everybody? Is it just kind of the random chance of whack-a-mole of eventually getting the extreme event in my place? Or is there something we can do to accelerate that urgency in a widespread way? I think that is an obligation of those of us who study this and those of you who communicate this to point out that it's just not, oh, it happened there, it's not going to happen here, it happened there, it's not going to happen there. Or that... The Paradise Fire in Northern California, they had had fires just about every other year on the woods that abutted the town. And those fires never got into places where people lived. And so they got used to the idea, fires are going to happen. Somebody's going to fix it. It's going to go away. Not a big deal. What climate change did was impose a drought on the forests and allow beetles not to die over the winter. So all of a sudden, the woods that used to be perfectly comfortable with having routine fires were kindling. And all of a sudden, a spark from a muffler from a car going down the middle of the state road in the middle of the forest started a fire. And in two and a half hours, it was inside the town where people lived. That is a fundamental change in what experiences. So the message has to be that you may be used to having these disasters and watching it on TV and stuff like that, but begin to think about why are they so intense? That fire blew up. There were tornadoes above houses that took fire 
500 feet in the air. That has never happened before. So what do we know? This is not good. We have to worry about this problem. And when you say all of a sudden, these are a set of underlying conditions that have played out over decades and decades. Right, right. All of a sudden is that these events start to show up and what opens your eyes is, boy, they are really intense. Maria was too intense for a standard hurricane in that time of year over Puerto Rico. Harvey was too intense. Florence the next year was too intense. You at some point said, I'm not fond of forensics, but there's now something called forensic attribution, which is how much of the intensity of an extreme weather event can be attributed to human-induced climate change, i.e. it would not have been that intense. The hurricane would have happened, but it would not have been intense as much as it was without climate change. Is there a word for that area of study? Forensic attribution. Michael Mann does it. If you want to interview somebody that would be really, really good on the science stuff, you should look for him. He's at Penn State, and he loves talking to people. So is it true that the symptoms that you're describing here are based on emissions that we emitted decades ago and that the emissions that we're doing today, the symptoms aren't going to play out until decades from now? Yes and no. Depends on cumulative emissions. So what happened in the past has contributed to atmospheric concentrations. But that does not mean that emissions this year and next year and the year after that don't contribute to the intensity and frequency of damages that the planet and ecosystems and humans and stuff will face. What is true is because of what I just said, the most valuable emissions to remove from the history of greenhouse gas are the ones you emit today because their damages will persist for 100 years. Mm-hmm. That's like a fresh cycle, essentially. Yeah. When it goes up, it goes up with a, I don't know if you call it a half-life. It's exactly yeah. half-life. Yeah. The half-life of carbon wow, dioxide. I winged that. I had no confidence <laughs> in that. <laughs> half-life of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is 100 years. I've heard, I heard hundreds from some people. Is that an overstatement? No. It's half-life is 100 years. The lifetime of a molecule of carbon that we emit today is potentially 500 years, 1,000 years. Have we faced a problem that has similar characteristics to this in the history of humans on the planet? Not in my life. I don't think so. I think that this... I'm an economist, so I'll, I'll give you the jargon. This is the mother of all discounted value, long-term future considerations, enormous uncertainty problems, for which the answer is iterative risk management. Recognize that you're not going to make policy for the next 100 years and not have to change it. Take into account where you want to be in 100 years and make a policy for 20 years, understanding that after 20 years, you're going to have to make an adjustment. And you're going to adjust mitigation, how much emissions you're going to reduce, adaptation where you're going to make investments in that and how much you're going to suffer. The other thing to think about is mitigation and adaptation are investments just like you're used to. Financial investments are exactly the same as mitigation and adaptation. You spend the money now and you get the benefits downstream. In terms of your work, you've got economists and you've got climate scientists and everybody's thinking about climate change Are those efforts separate and distinct or deeply collaborative? Deeply collaborative. Can you explain a bit about the work that you do? Um, Well, starting in 1982, there was one committee, and there were a couple of scientists, a couple of economists, a couple of sociologists on this panel, and that was the beginning. After a while, there were communities of people that worried about adaptation and communities of people that worried about the implications of emissions and the costs of reducing emissions. So there are three communities. For a very long time, we all met for two weeks in Snowmass, Colorado, and talked to each other about what we had done over the past year and designed experiments in terms of the modeling that everybody would do and come back and compare the results. I got lucky, one, by being at Wesleyan, and two, by majoring in five different things when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. And one of them was philosophy, one of them was mathematics, that's where I ended up. One of them was physics, one of them was chemical engineering, and one of them was chemistry. You had five majors? I changed majors a lot. 
I only had one major when I left, but I changed majors a lot. Phew, I was about to have a major inferiority <laughs> complex. You all should know that the reason I got out of physics, chemistry, and chemical engineering is because they had labs in the afternoon, and I was playing Division One golf, and I wanted to be able to practice in the afternoon. So can we then give golf credit for all of the accomplishments that you've given to the climate fight over Probably. the last dozens of years? To some degree. What I learned in my college career is the vocabulary of lots and lots of people with whom I will end up collaborating. I can talk to an atmospheric chemist. I can't tell him what to do, but I will understand when he tells me what he's done and why it's important. So it's obvious to me where the climate scientists fit in. When I think about economics... And my caveat is that I was a terrible economics student. So be thankful that you didn't know me when- But right. you've never I, been in this <laughs> office before. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could have turned me around. I, I could have got won the most improved player award. But, but when I think about economics, I think about things like GDP growth in perpetuity, for example. And I think about some alternate viewpoints like this book that I've partially read. I haven't finished it, but it's called Donut Economics. Are you familiar with that one? that it essentially talks about how economics needs to be fundamentally re rewired for the next chapter of human history where it isn't tied to GDP growth because GDP growth doesn't factor in the toll that that growth takes on the planet. So so either we need to decouple it like the eco-modernists say, where you are untethering that growth from the natural resource, or you need to rethink economics to not be about growth, but to be essentially about staying in balance, in harmony with people's livelihoods and surroundings. So that was a long-winded way of asking, what is the economist's role in helping avert this planetary crisis? Economists are worried about climate change, have to realize that climate policy is not going to solve all of those social problems that you just mentioned. What economics that we know and calibrated the GDP and energy intensity and, and things like that allows us to do is in the first approximation, think about what it will cost to change the emissions, how that will play out in distribution across the planet in very aggregate terms. And you get a picture of what it looks like to adapt and decisions for adaptation are easier to think about in economic terms because they really are cost-benefit problems. Very specific locations, so people can tell you what would be the benefits and how much will it cost, and is it worth it to do that? Mitigation is much harder because it's much more international. Depends on how negotiations go and free rider problems and uncertainty and that sort of thing. And so the best you get out of economics is sort of a vague picture of the distribution of possible outcomes and some idea of why you might get on the high trajectory and why you might get on the low trajectory, which doesn't sound very significant, but the level of uncertainty in climate models is about the same size. Thinking about how this atmosphere works to manipulate the climate across the globe and be manifest in the weather across the globe in specific locations is an enormously problem. And so we're doing the best we can with what we can do, but we're trying to recognize that climate policy isn't going to fix all the world's problems. We're going to take the world's problems as given and work on what climate policy should look like. Is your piece trying to think through what policy will bring about certain behaviors from the market? Yeah, or certain behaviors by decision makers who might not be playing in the market. They just have their own view of how they're going to make decisions and, and what they think is important. And how does it work? Do you have an opinion on a policy path, for example, that you're rooting for and then go do the work to see if it will support or refute? Or does the work lead you to the hypothesis? It sort of goes back and forth, but it's usually the work leads you to a hypothesis. On the side, there will be some positive economic analysis that comes from the roots of economic theory and, and for a developed country that tells you this policy would be better than that policy. So a carbon tax, every economist that I know agrees that you have to price carbon. There are lots and lots of different ways of pricing carbon. The simplest one is a carbon tax. Cap and trade is another one where the markets decide what price of cap and trade is. If neither of those are politically feasible, you can impose regulations and technology standards. Is political feasibility a criteria in the recommendations that you make as an economist? Eventually. The first thing you do is try to do the hardcore economics, but then you say, for example, 
we can achieve on average the same outcome with the carbon tax or cap and trade, except that cap and trade has a variable price on carbon and businesses don't like variable prices. And so that becomes another source of uncertainty. And so pure economic theory says a carbon tax is the best idea. In the United States of America, the only place a tax can be written is the Ways and Means Committee of the House of Representatives. That's just not gonna happen. So, okay, we figured it out. That would be a really good thing. Dick Schmollensy tells you that will never happen. You say, okay, well, we'll have to live with that. Why do you think that is, that it will never happen? Given that there's such consensus in the economic community that it's the most powerful lever that we have. There is not consensus among the members of the Ways and Means Committee of the House of Representatives. And historically, the Ways and Means Committee occasionally decides it wants to impose a tax, and it does, and then it thinks it's done, and we're finished with that problem, we'll we'll move on to another problem. Climate is not one of those problems. Once you pass a tax, you're done. Next year, it has to be bigger than this year. The year after that, it has to be bigger than the year from now. And you have to figure out, one, at what rate should it go up? And two, how you get a monolithic institution of decision-making to make adjustments year after year after year after year. So when it comes to this kind of tax policy historically, I am certainly not a historian in this area. So one question that comes to mind is, is there precedent in terms of as this kind of tax policy has been shaped and passed, what has the interplay been between these policymakers and the economists? It seems like this is the economist lane and the policymakers are unequipped to properly assess without the trusted economists making recommendations. And if the trusted economists are making, it sounds like, a consistent recommendation, then is there precedent for policymakers just ignoring that on other issues besides climate and carbon tax? Not sure. They certainly do it for this. And the replacement has been cap and trade in a lot of places. There's cap and trade in New England. There's cap and trade in California. California has a wonderful cap and trade program. Jerry Brown used it to fix the economic harm and problems of the state of California, generate a couple billion dollars a year in revenue, and they use that to underwrite investments and adaptation. That worked. That worked. Okay, fine. Good. But if Jerry Brown had gone to Sacramento and said, I want to tax carbon, that wouldn't have worked. So you just, you live with what the world will give you as a policy tool. If you discover that one of the policy tools just doesn't have anything it's attached to, so you could push on it all you want and nothing's going to change, then you say, okay, that's a constraint. So is the biggest pushback from the policymakers that the free market should solve this? No. No, they think that the free market is the source of all wealth and all income and and all welfare across the economy, and people should get out of the way of letting the market fix all of society's issues and make the rich people really rich. And any influence, any consideration of a climate policy is just verboten. And is that because they don't believe that it's a problem? or that the free markets will address it? They don't believe that the free markets will address it. There is no market that will address climate change. They're not necessarily sure that it's a problem, but even if they are sure, they're much happier with the short-term gains of ignoring it and less concerned about the potential damages that will happen downstream for people that they don't know and don't care about. Yeah, see, that's what I feared it was, because when you hear that, then it just becomes sacrificing what's clearly the long-term right for greed in the in the short term. The caveat, though, and the area where I have more trouble, candidly, is the people that say, well, that's easy for you to say, like, you sold your company. You don't need to worry about how to put food on the table in the short term. You have the privilege and the luxury to care about future generations and some problem that's decades away that you can't see or touch other than some extra wind when I'm walking around the city, right? I'm trying to figure out how to put food on the table for my five kids and I'm working three jobs and I'm living in the red week to week and month to month and even more in the red if I get sick for a day or I get hurt or something comes up where where I have to miss my hourly job. And so the greed on behalf of the rich that don't need any more and are just elbowing out everyone so they can keep earning, I have a real problem with. But that latter one is a tougher one I'm still sorting through. Right. I fully understand that. I've met a couple of people who are very, very rich and have decided they have enough. 
and they are trying to figure out how to effectively distribute, not give away their money, distribute handles on things that will make people's lives better. So get malaria out of this community's life. That would be a really good thing. And if you're healthier and you don't have to worry about malaria, then maybe you, the rest of your life will get a little bit better. In the meantime, I can do only do one thing at a time. I want to do it very, very carefully. And so that's what I do. Bloomberg has been very, very aggressive in supporting climate policy. And he does it by allocating through his philanthropies monies for things like the Sierra Club. But he doesn't just sort of show up at a meeting at the Sierra Club and say, okay, here's $75 million, do with it what you want. He and his people sit down and say, okay, you're asking me for this $75 million. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to manage it? How are you going to manipulate it? How are you going to efficiently run this operation? So his skills in risk management and potentially your skills and what you did for a living get to apply to people learning how to take $75 million and apply it to reducing emissions or getting rid of coal-fired power plants in an efficient way. The other guy, by the way, is Bill Gates. I've been paying attention to some of the things that Bill's doing, and Bill seems clearly focused on the on the breakthrough side of the equation, right? The fundamental science breakthroughs that could move the needle in an outsized way if they happen, but that require more capital and more time. How do you think about that as it relates to more incremental deployment of what's already there as it relates to policy? How do you stack rank in order of what can have the biggest impact? He knows more about that than I do. I'm pretty good at identifying where the problems are. I did spend three and a half hours talking to him about climate change. Uh, it was supposed to be an hour and a half meeting in Seattle. And he kept canceling appointments and stayed to, to when, listen. When was this? 10 years ago. It's pretty cool. It was very cool. And at the very end, somebody said, you've got a meeting coming up. You really can't cancel. And so he had to go. And he stood up and he said, this is climate. This is the first problem that I've ever seen that I don't think technology can solve. And we have to do the social science, we have to do manipulating markets or structures of social institutions and things like that to get things to work and then move on. And so I think he learned from that how to organize how we um, went into Africa and started to fight malaria. It was not a technological fix. It wasn't screens on everybody's windows. It was something entirely different. Do you think we can get there without a price on carbon? No. And given that, do you have a clear view on, is it one size fits all in terms of there's one type of structure that should be applied across the board or, or is it geography dependent or industry dependent? Like, How do you think about the right solution? All hands on deck. If we could tax carbon and tax would go up at the rate of interest annually in a predictable way and businesses got accustomed to that. That would work really, really well. And you wouldn't be taxing carbon as it comes out of production process. You would be taxing carbon as it enters the economy. So instead of millions and hundreds of millions of sources, you'd only have 2,500 places where you would keep track of that. And that would work really, really hard. Okay, so that's the paragon. It's not going to happen. But the ramifications if you did that give you a glimpse on if what you want to do is regulate industry, regulate emitters, regulate what the targets should be for those places, for those particular people. And that's what the Obama administration did. The Clean Energy Plan was essentially a, a series of regulations that effectively would have reduced emissions. Which didn't pass, right? It didn't have to pass. It was an executive order. It got taken away by Trump. But a regulation like that effectively puts a price on carbon. There are lots of ways of pricing carbon. That, that one is called a shadow price. Can't go to the Wall Street Journal and look up what the price is. If you go talk to somebody who's generating electricity with a fossil fuel, he or she will tell you what's the price of carbon. And the clean energy plan put a price, effective price on carbon, and it was going to increase as time went on. Cap and trade in New England for electricity generation puts a price on carbon, and it goes up at a rate of interest, not because we set the price in the market, but because we reduce the total quantity that people are allowed to emit. And then they can buy and sell back and forth. Do you think the U.S., as an example, should land on one structure at the federal level? Not by itself. I think the U.S. should be very happy to re-engage 
with the international community and the Paris Accord and work on what an international structure would look like so that the interface between the United States and Bangladesh, the United States and countries in Africa, the United States and Germany, the United States and Canada, the United States and China would understand how this is all working together. The U.S. can't do it by itself, but it has to play. It has to play in that game. It's one of the real, real harms of withdrawing from the Paris Accord. This issue is clearly, on the, from a political standpoint, gotten to be a very partisan one, which to me seems silly given that it affects all of us regardless of our political leanings. Do you think that what you're suggesting the right path forward is in terms of that international collaboration, is that a partisan stance or is that one that should be party agnostic? I think it should be party agnostic. Climate became partisan about 20 years ago, and I'm not quite sure why, but there were people that the skeptics were saying, oh, climate isn't changing, you guys are full of it. Oh yeah, well, climate is changing, but it really doesn't matter, so you guys are all full of it, we shouldn't worry about it. Well, actually, we're seeing some effects of climate change, but they won't really hurt anybody, so you know, everybody go away. And that became a partisan question. And it got so partisan that the skeptics could just make stuff up, but those of us who were doing the real science couldn't make a single mistake. If we made a mistake, everything was disbelieved. But if Fred Singer says the sky is gray today, and it's perfectly, actually the sky is gray today, but if it's perfectly blue, and somebody says, Fred, the sky is blue, so yeah, well, okay, my bad. But if I said that, arguing with Fred Singer, nobody would ever believe me from anything else. We spent enormous amounts of energy in IPCC, National Climate Assessment, stuff like that, trying to make sure we never make a mistake. And that's really, really hard. And the reason for that is the partisanship. No theories as to where that originated or how it came to be? I think it's greed. I think it's just greed. To go after them. My wife and I have this conversation all the time. They breathe the same air. Rich people, those greedy people, those people that are skeptics, those people that are damaging what we're trying to do to, to make the world a better place, breathe the same air, drink the same water. Their kids are going to go up into the same future. Why can't they see that? I don't know. I don't know. So one thing I thought was interesting when we were talking a bit before we started recording is that you had mentioned that you're coming at this from an economist perspective and that you're not a business person. So when I was talking about some of the CEOs and such that are coming on the podcast, that's not an area where you spend a lot of time thinking about. Given your perspective, how do you feel today about the Exxons of the world, the big fossil fuel companies, knowing that for decades they their scientists had this information about the harm and not only stalled, but actively misled the public. Yeah, it's sort of the same way I think about tobacco companies. How do you think about tobacco companies? I think it was immoral. I've written opinion pieces that have said that the Trump approach is essentially immoral. When he was going to cut the budgets for the NIH and for climate change research all across the federal government and stuff like that, that's what I think about it. Exxon funded research in climate change, but they used it to figure out that they should go drill for oil in the Arctic, which was actually pretty forward-looking of them, but it made me really uncomfortable. But I will tell you a different story. Chevron is a big oil company. They have a refinery in the, off in the Gulf Coast, and they use solar energy to run their refinery. They don't use their own product because it's economically better. And so I think that those companies in Saudi Arabia and those countries are beginning to come to the realization that they're going to leave a lot of oil on the ground and just because nobody's going to want to buy it. The canary in the coal mine, if you will, when Trump said, I'm going to open all these coal mines in West Virginia and stuff like that and revitalize the coal industry, people would come to talk to me and I would say, it doesn't bother me at all. Nobody's going to buy that coal. Investors, companies had already moved on and they are not going to come back to retrofit their companies to use coal and they think that in five or 10 years it'll be enormously expensive. So that's great because, so economics is making coal less attractive. But what about if you take in this country natural gas, so cheap, 
yet it still emits. And it might emit less than coal, but it still emits meaningfully. The fact that it's so cheap inhibits the transition to clean energy. Can't the economics first approach backfire? Not necessarily. I think the constraint on natural gas has to be it's a bridge from coal and oil to alternative energy like wind and, and solar and nuclear, things like that. And so the warning sign would be if people are investing in natural gas in long-lived infrastructure projects, that's problematic. What do they look like? They look like big pipelines. And so if you build a pipeline and you expect it to last for 60 years, you've committed the planet for 60 years of that natural gas. But if you get another way to distribute it, to the marketplace, and the whole country doesn't have natural gas. You can have Pennsylvania that has a lot of natural gas, use a lot of natural gas, but do it with trucks or short pipelines or something like that. Allow it to be viewed as an interim solution. Unless you can talk to somebody who makes the investment and says, yes, it's a 60-year pipeline, but internal rate of return if we view it as a 20-year pipeline. So bouncing around a bit, but back to the fossil fuel companies, do you think their executives that the misinformation campaigns and such happen on their watches, should they be criminally liable for their actions? Don't know. I don't know. I know that the Clean Air Act got much stronger teeth when they went from $25,000 a day as the maximum fine for violating a pollution control to the CEO would be held criminally responsible for violating the standard. Funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hold the CEO personally responsible and all of a sudden the urgency level ratchets up several notches, right. regardless of where the principal but should be. But that's a forward-looking sort of thing. Your question was a backward-looking sort of thing, and I'm not quite sure what to think about that. Well, I have another forward-looking thing then to throw at you, which is, do you want to see the Black Rocks of the world divesting actively from fossil fuel in their portfolios? Over time, sure. What I recognize is the people that make those sorts of decisions have fiduciary responsibilities, so I have to do it carefully. But people divested from South Africa, they resisted for a very long time, but eventually got around to it, and it worked. Well, I had one executive from a company that actively works with those big fossil fuel companies as part of his business commercially, make the case that if we want to achieve the clean transition, the quickest, most efficient way, that it is better to work with the big incumbents with the infrastructure and the resources and get them to adapt versus starting from scratch and trying to disrupt them. That's sort of what I was saying. You just have to be prudent. Don't expect that it's going to happen right away. Let me tell you a way that I think would be better, and it's something Bill Nordhaus has written about. It's called the Climate Club, and it is, it is for nations. It is created when a couple of big emitters decide that they will negotiate reductions in carbon emissions and verify them to each other. That happened in the Obama administration between the United States and China. I was on the campus the day that, that President Xi and President Obama signed that, and people were on the ceiling. And it broke the logjam, and that's why we have a Paris Accord. The idea that Bill has created is not only do you encourage countries to come in, the only way you get into it is restrict your emissions to a, at a level that would be negotiated with the members of the climate club. So why would anybody want to do that? That's going to hurt your economy and stuff. The opposite side is that when you are a member, you can impose a tariff on imports from non-members for everything in proportion to the carbon content. If it's a sweater and if it's completely organic and natural, except for distribution, there's no carbon content, so the tariff would be zero. But if it were something bigger, where you're using it to produce something that takes a lot of energy, and a lot of that came from carbon, tariff would be high. The World Trade Organization has agreed that that would be legal. American Economic Association presidential address two or three years ago talked about it, but he also talked about it in Stockholm this year when he won the Nobel Prize. You can't mention the Nobel Prize without me stopping you right there and asking about your experience with the Nobel Prize, because we, of course, we have to sneak that in before the episode, not that the episode's wrapping, but but we can't let you escape here without talking about it. Okay. You won a share of a Nobel Prize, right? I did. When? How did it come about? 2000 and, 2007, I think. 
I got up in the morning. My wife went down to make coffee. I was preparing for class, and she came up and said, IPCC just won the Nobel Prize. Did you know that, that you had been nominated? Nominations aren't public for 50 years. So they're not public until 50 years after they occur. Mm -hmm. The nominations, pretty clear if somebody won that they were nominated, but everybody else, it's secret. And what was the basis for the nomination? What was the work that IPCC had done? The description of why IPCC got the prize was that we were effectively communicating a significant amount of climate change problem across the globe and integrating that into discussions about policy. Gave a Nobel Prize to scientists for communicating their science when none of us are really very good at that. <laughs> it was the same year Al Gore won. So he was the communicator and we were the creator of assessment insights into the climate stuff. I mean, every six years we published 2,600 pages and summarized that into 22 pages of summaries for policymakers that were designed to be read by heads of state. Takes a while to do that. <laughs> what an amazing honor. It was fun. I can't think of a much greater one. Yeah, I mean, Linda said, okay, what are you going to do? And so I'm going to sit down and write something up in case somebody calls. And 30 minutes later, Andy Revkin from the New York Times called, and I was ready. <laughs> so given the 12 years have gone by since you won that prize, how are you feeling about our trajectory as a species in terms of doing the things that need to be done to get out ahead of this problem? That's actually an easy question. I'm still doing this work, so I must think it's going to make a contribution. That's what I wake up to do. Get up in the morning and I want to go write a paper. I want to go do this research. I want to go talk to somebody like you. I want to help Michael Bennett become president. I spent this morning talking to Chris Murphy, the U.S. editor. I will tell you what differentiates him. When I talk to people like that, I guarantee them that I will not talk about anything that I'm not expert in. So therefore, I will only talk about climate stuff. The thing about climate that differentiates Michael Bennett is that he recognizes that there are enormous health effects of exposure to heat and extreme events and stuff generated by climate change. And it's not just asthma and allergies, vector-borne diseases like Nile virus and stuff like that. It's depression and suicide after extreme events. After about five or 10 days, people just get completely beaten down by the, what has just happened to their lives. And so his proposal is to fund a new division in the National Institutes of Health with brand new money that will anticipate the health effects of climate change. Nobody else is talking about that. Yeah, so it's a kind of like another branch of adaptation. And the NIH is really, really good at what they do, and it's a perfect place to put money. So specific candidates aside, what advice do you have for listeners, given that we do have an election coming up in terms of if someone cares about climate change and they care about our democracy and they want to put a leader in place who is going to give us the best shot to decarbonize quickly and effectively, what should they look for and how should they assess one candidate versus another? I think they should look at the mix of policies that the candidate is talking about, adaptation and mitigation and a variety of things like that. I think they should look for somebody who sees the urgency in the problem, but sees the potential for mistake. And so language that I wrote that I think is the reason I'm proud of that, the Nobel Prize, is that responding to climate change is an iterative risk management problem involving both adaptation and mitigation. It takes into account distribution of income, co-benefits, costs, attitudes towards risk. And that was adopted by consensus unanimously by 169 countries around the world. And it has framed assessments since 2007. New York Panel on Climate Change, America's Climate Choices, National Climate Assessment, subsequent IPCC reports, all are based on risk, not on cost-benefit analysis. Do you think that in order to bring about wholesale change at the policy level that it requires bipartisan support? Yes, and it requires international support. So one of the things that I would look for in a candidate would be somebody who says, we have to re-engage with our responsibility for the global response to the climate risk. It seems like it's broader than just a U.S. issue, that globalism is on the outs, essentially. Yeah, and I don't understand that. I do know that there was a time earlier when the United States wasn't participating very much when Bush 43 was president, 
And the rest of the world was sort of just sitting around waiting for the United States to come back. And Obama got elected, and I named uh, Todd Stern was the chief negotiator, and he went to his first conference of the parties of the Framework Convention. Got there a little late, I don't know why, but he walked in and got a standing ovation as the representative of the just United States, just for showing up. Thank God you guys are here. Let's go. Let's go to work. So given that any major climate legislation requires bipartisan support, and given that it's a polarized and politicized issue, I mean, do we stand a better chance by digging in on the progressive side and scrapping and clawing and, and getting enough votes or voters? Or is it more kind of centrist where it's more trying to build bridges across party lines and, and come up with compromise solutions? I think it is concern about the ability to cross party lines. I've written that I not real fond of the Green New Deal. I read that and, and was definitely <laughs> on my list. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I wouldn't have let you escape without talking about it. Yeah. All of the objectives that are there are perfectly fine and didn't have any specifics in it and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of progress that happened after the release of the fourth national climate assessment disappeared overnight because the other side started to call it socialism. Well, let me ask you a question about that, though. So on the one hand, they're making these bold proclamations and things that the right says are far out and crazy. But on the other, I've heard some people say, including some people on the right that care about climate, because there are a few, as I'm sure you know, but that say that it actually creates some open space for the right to propose a climate policy, but it's a less extreme one than the Green New Deal. So it, it has essentially moved the Overton window. So That's yeah. the old Ted Kennedy argument that Ted Kennedy was so far out there that he would make a statement and somebody could come in just a little bit to the right of him and collect some support. And Senator Kennedy knew exactly what he was doing with respect to that. If you read down to the bottom of what I wrote, it doesn't say that it should simply be nothing but climate. It just it said that the various components of the Green New Deal should stay in their lane and not get in each other's way. That's another one I'm wrestling with, honestly, because so I was at a conference recently in Europe. Overall, it was not a very diverse conference in terms of gender or ethnicity. And some of my colleagues actually point out to me that this fact that it was not very diverse and that in some ways climate change to them is it's a white problem. It's a, a white problem in that it's like it takes a certain amount of privilege to be able to think with the time horizons that climate necessitates when there's a here and now of a ton of people on this planet, the wealth and equity and the people in poverty, extreme poverty and things like that. And, and that in a world of resource constraint that climate will bring about, that these inequities are only going to get worse. And so therefore, we must, in order to get buy-in, the widespread buy-in that we'll need for a transition like this, we can't separate or decouple the social issues from the climate issues. Otherwise, there'll be big chunks of the world that just won't sign off because they're not going to sign on to keep the status quo from the social standpoint for the next chapter. There's no evidence of that. There's 168 countries that signed on to the Paris Accord. And because if you read the Paris Accord, it's not just targeted reductions in emissions per country and stuff like that. There are funds for adaptation. There are funds to support investments in new technology, recognizing that New technology that might work to reduce emissions in the United States might not work in Nigeria, might not work in Pakistan, might not work in India. And so it has to be site-specific. And that was a deliberate part of the negotiations on the Framework Convention. But a large number of us a long, long time ago decided that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is not the Intergovernmental Panel on Social Welfare. We cannot solve all of the world's problems. We can work and provide information for people who are, are having a conversation about how to approach climate change. And a lot of our work will talk about the ramifications, the social ramifications of a carbon tax or an adaptation or things like that, and tell people how to take into account the risk and attitudes towards risk, distributions of income, and things like that. But we don't write policy. The Framework Convention does. And the Framework Convention is very sensitive to the stuff that you just talked about. But what I heard from you is that essentially that the Green New Deal is not necessary because the issues of inequity 
are addressed already in the proposals that are being made. No, 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 no. What I said was that the Green New Deal had the potential of hijacking climate policy because opponents were labeling the whole batch as socialism. And within a day and a half, Trump was saying, we're taking away airplanes. Senator Barrasso was saying, we're taking away cows. We're taking away my ice cream. But we're not, right? But so what? But is it the fault of the Green New Deal? Or is it the fault of the people that are that are making up falsities about things that aren't actually it in the It is the, the fault of the people who wrote the Green New Deal created a very slow-moving target. What do you mean by that? Something that's going very slowly in the air and you can shoot at it. Oh, so the Green New Deal in itself is a target. It's a slow new target. It's a very slow moving target. Well, I've heard a lot of people that are climate insiders that feel like essentially the movement's been neglected for so long that regardless of whether they agree with the substance or lack of substance or whatever is actually in the Green New Deal all the attention that it's bringing to the issue, just the amount of times that the word climate is being mentioned in conversation is a huge net positive. They were not paying attention on Black Friday after Thanksgiving. What happened on Black Friday after Thanksgiving? The Trump administration dropped the second volume of the fourth national climate assessment under the assumption that everybody would be off shopping and nobody would pay any attention. They were required by law to issue it and so they tried to hide it. So what happened? Well, in fact, everybody was out shopping. There was no other news. So in 168 newspapers around the country, above the fold on Saturday was the release of the fourth national climate assessment. And I was on the phone and on TV on six continents starting two days before it was released because people knew it was going. And that news cycle lasted 10 days. They were still taking phone calls from BBC eight days after the release. And that continued. And that caused the eruption amongst Democratic candidates to start talking about climate change. Are you saying that the Green New Deal hasn't also done that? Yes. It has not. Has not. All of that happened before the Green New Deal showed up, and candidates were already talking about climate change. So the Green New Deal hasn't increased the volume. It has not precipitated the volume of conversation in the Democratic Party at all. Huh. That's interesting. That is different information than I've been hearing from many other places, and that, that doesn't mean... Right or wrong? Or... A lot of candidates have signed on to the Green New Deal. Kamala Harris has signed on, Klobuchar has signed on, and things like that. They did it pretty quickly. I'm not sure they thought about it really, really hard. Some candidates, like Michael Bennett, have not signed on. But if you look at what he's talking about across lots of different types of social issues, he's picking up most of the chips. So do you actually think that it's not the substance you're taking issue with, it's calling it a tagline that's yes. like a target? Yes. I've heard people argue just the opposite, that what we finally have is a tagline and like a blimp and something to fly up there that we can point at and talk about and brand and own. They don't live in my world where I have to keep people on the other side. Help me understand that. What world are you living in that that is harmful? And I'm not saying saying it's not. I just, I really want to understand it. It's a complete political world in places where... This is where I could go and have a legitimate conversation with people and think that I might have a shot at convincing them of something. So you go around and give a lot of talk and things like that. There are just people in the audience that you see that you just know that there's really no point in talking to that guy. That person, that woman, that man is not going to change his or her mind just because of climate change. So if that person has the Green New Deal to shoot at, then that person will, instead of trying to get into the substance, say, this is all just socialism. You guys want to take my Jeep. You think standing in the middle of the aisle and trying to make nice then is the approach that will breed the most success politically? Yeah, very slowly. But yes, I think there are people who have experience walking across the aisle and they've set up good communications and what they don't need is some sort of tagline that gets in the way between the people that these guys talk to and the people that those guys talk to. What people or organizations are doing the work that you think helps the cause the most, that just stands out to you as exemplary citizens in this area? Center for American Progress, Podesta's group. Resources for the Future, Environmental Defense Fund, those guys. And what is it about their work that makes them stand out to you? It's honest. 
you know, the question you asked a long time ago, do you start the research that you're, or the paper that you're writing with a particular conclusion in mind and make it happen? Or do you do the work and then honestly evaluate what the result is? Brookings does, Resources for the Future does, Environmental Defense Fund does, and CAP does. They are honest brokers. So I don't know if this happens to you, but anecdotally, I've come across some other professors and what they say that are in this area, this broader area, not economics or climate economics like you, but what they say is that students and other people get pointed at them all the time that are like me, that care about the planet and are concerned about climate change and want to help but don't really understand the issue or where to start or how to personally be helpful. And I know that a bunch of our listeners are, are like that. So I guess speak to them for a minute. What advice do you have for them in terms of how they should think about getting involved and where they should start? Uh, I think they should start where they live. They should get involved by becoming educated. The National Climate Assessment is a good place for science information and impacts information written not for scientists but for general public. So go to nca2018.globalchange.gov and educate yourself so that you know what the scientific community honestly thinks is going on. It is honest, and it has been written to be very careful not to make a mistake. And then think about what it looks like in your daily life. So, I mean, there's a variety of things that you can do. Some of them are pretty obvious, and everybody talks. You're going to buy a new appliance, buy one that's energy efficient. If you are thinking about replacing your roof because it's 25 years old, replace the roof, but also replace the gutters and make them commercial-sized gutters because more rain is going to happen and it will keep you from flooding your house. Can I ask a question? There was a study that came out recently that said that these small nudges for your personal behavior change are actually more harmful to the climate fight than not because the people that get those nudges and actually do these small things are less likely to support the widespread systemic change that's required. So are these small nudges the same type of distraction as the Green New Deal is? I don't know that literature. I don't think so. Two other things that I've talked about. One is every once in a while, local TV stations have to go up to get their license renewed and they take public input. In, in the public input, say, we demand that at some point in the local news every week, at a predictable time, there will be five or ten minutes of reporting by a designated reporter about something that has to do with climate, an impact that was observed, or an investment that was taken, just so that that perpetuates and people can see that people are noticing climate change, responding to climate change. This is, this is how they're doing it. The last thing, there are people in positions of power and deliberation, legislators and governors and things like that. And citizens who are engaged in their communities and in their state and in their country typically come up with ideas, hey, you should be doing this and write a letter to the governor or write a letter to the senator or write a letter to the congressman. I think you really should be doing that. That's perfectly fine. That's what democracy is all about. What I suggest, though, is that if you find somebody and I personally think such a somebody as Chris Murphy, our junior senator. Everyone's why just write him a thank you note. I really appreciate what you're doing. In particular, I saw you supported this or you dropped that bill or whatever. Just thank you, f essentially, for your sacrifice. 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And then what I say is that if you do that, I will guarantee that that note will get past the gatekeeper. <laughs> and Senator Murphy will actually take that home and show it to his wife and his children and say, see, they think I'm doing good for you. And that's a really worthwhile thing to do. How's that? That's a good idea? Well, I think that's making a case for how little things can go a long way. It's a very human condition, but it's true. It's framed from what I know about Connecticut politics, and that probably doesn't apply to Wyoming. In Connecticut, people expect their senators and Congress people to come home every weekend and travel around and go to events and talk to people and stuff, and then go back to Washington and do their job. So it's really a seven-day job. In Wyoming, they don't expect you to fly all the way to Wyoming for three hours and then fly back. The first person that I really knew who had a job like that was Chris Dodd, and he never saw his family. We insist on that from the people that represent us, and that's an enormous sacrifice. 
two last quick ones for you, and then I'll let you get to your dinner. Second to last is, so if you take out the human element and you just had money, $100 billion, or make up a number, add a few zeros for all I care, but you could allocate it to any which way you chose to maximize its impact on the climate fight, where would it go? If you really gave me five minutes to do that and gave me the money, I would probably be phone up Bill Gates and say, here's some more, give it away. It's really hard to give money away effectively. You have to be very careful. Yet you think giving more away will help that? Give yeah. it to Bill because he knows what he's doing. Or I know Bloomberg too, give it to him. Because one, they manage money really, really well. And two, they know what they're doing. And three, they've practiced this problem. And if I weren't allowed to do that, I'd have to think really, really hard where it should go. Last question. And that is just that when I reached out to you, I thought I was reaching out to this elder statesman in climate, recently retired, right? Or in the process? June 30th. Oh, June 30th. Coming right up. Congratulations. But one of the things you mentioned, just as an aside, blew my mind, which is that you actually had some raps commissioned and got a real rapper on board to sing about them that are related to climate. So I have to ask you about them. What are they and where can we find them? Guy is Baba Brinkman. You just Google him and you will find them. One's called Erosion, one's called Destruction, and one's called Redemption. We released them on the first one, Erosion, we released on Inauguration Day for Trump. And then every year since then, we've released one on the anniversary of Inauguration Day. And how did these come about? I got a phone call from Baba cold call. He has something called a rap on climate chaos, and he performs it in New York City at Aaron Burr's house, the Soho Theater. And he said, in the middle of this, we bring in people that know something about climate to answer questions. Would you like to do that? Appearing off Broadway sounded like a good idea. So my wife and I went in, and, and so he did that, and I answered some questions, and he answered some questions and stuff like that. I just ended up really liking him. That was in the summer, and, and in the fall, shortly after the election results. I just called him up and asked him if he would like to write something in honor of the enormous disaster that we had just done. And he said, sure. I did the fact checking and he did the lyrics. Amazing. We'll have to check them out. And I, I have to tell you as well that, that that was a very Wesleyan thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It just, I mean, I went to school here and it's, it's crazy. I mean, you could just be walking on Foss Hill or across the field and you, you don't see footballs and lacrosse sticks and the things you see at normal schools, right? You see like accordions, unicycles. <laughs> Sometimes you see lacrosse sticks and things like that. Yeah, it's gotten a lot more athletic since I left. 20 years ago, 21. But it has struck me that among faculty at Wesleyan, I'm unique for two reasons. One is that prize and one I appeared on Broadway. Amazing. Well, this has been a fascinating Thank discussion. You. It's been good. Yeah, we it. took a circuitous path, if that's the right word, but I think that we covered a bunch of interesting ground that- Circuitous suggests that yeah. it was a circle. It was more like a random walk. Random walk. That's better. I definitely learned a lot, and I think that our listeners will as well. So, Professor Gary O. I appreciate your coming down, finding me. I appreciate what you're doing. I mean, you picked up a blank computer and decided to work on this. And that was very brave of you. Well, another 30 years and maybe I'll, I'll hold a candle to you. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Gary Yo, thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.